Welcome back to Bethesda Broadcast. After a couple-week break, we are back in our study of John called Who Do You Believe? In today's message, Pastor Roy will be speaking from John chapter 6, verses 22 to 71. In today's message, he will be looking at how three different groups of people responded to the claims of Christ. We hope you open up your Bibles and join us in John chapter 6. week. I thank Wes Nelson for filling in the pulpit last week. I understand he's doing pulpit supply elsewhere this morning, and, uh, but I appreciated uh, him sharing with you last week. And uh, we had a wonderful time being away, but it's good to be back and uh, ready to, to serve. This week uh, will mark four years, uh, July 3rd, uh, that we pulled into town uh, to serve here at Bethesda, and it has been a joy to serve in this church, to serve you, uh, to get to know you better, to love you, to serve with you. And we look forward to, uh, with great anticipation to what God will do in the future uh, years to come. And we as a leadership team, I might pass on to you, have spent uh, a considerable amount of time in prayer for the future vision and direction of our church. And I would invite you as a congregation to join us in prayer for that. I've challenged our leadership to pray every day uh, specifically for the future vision and direction of our church. That includes ministry. It includes uh, future building that we may do. Uh, We really want to follow the Lord and have his hand on what we do. So we would greatly appreciate you and invite you to pray along with us uh, in that. Today, we're continuing our series in John chapter 6. Responding to the claims of Christ. Uh, I did cover a few of these verses, but I'm going to go back and kind of cover some of them again because this whole discourse on the bread of life is really a follow-up to the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus did. And so really to keep it together as a unit, we need to look at that whole uh, passage. It's a rather large passage, and it has some very difficult verses. Um, And we won't be able to expound on every single verse, uh, but certainly try to give you the overall picture of what I believe Jesus was trying to communicate to the various audiences that he dealt with. And so today we're really going to focus on three major groups of people that Jesus gave this discourse to. The first group, of course, is the crowds uh, that he addressed. Uh, There was a crowd who followed Jesus. The second group is the Jews, and the third group is the disciples. Uh, So we can kind of see the overview of that. Let's begin reading in verse 22, and I'm just going to read the first section because they're all kind of long sections, uh, 22 through uh, 40. And this is the next day immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So he says in verse 22 of John chapter 6, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he begins this discourse with the first group of people, and this first group is the crowds that we see. He says that at the beginning, the next day, the crowd, and also down in verse 24, once the crowd realized. And so with this, Jesus claimed the crowds were following him for selfish reasons. There's a lot of different reasons why people will follow Jesus. There's a lot of different reasons why people will come to church or why they might even read their Bible or why they might even pray. Uh, Atheists will even pray oftentimes when they're faced with hardship and difficulty. Where their life is being threatened, they will find themselves even praying. So Jesus claims that the crowd was following him for selfish reasons. In fact, his answer to them when they asked him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? He does not answer their question. Instead, he comes back and he explains the motives of why they're even beginning to follow after him. He says in 26, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The point was, I filled your bellies, and you are so in love with me meeting your physical needs that you totally missed the point of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 was not to simply fill your bellies. The feeding of the 5,000 was to show you that I am sufficient to meet all of your needs, not just uh, physical, but spiritual, emotional, mental. I am all-conclusive. I wanted to meet all of your needs, and you totally missed the sign that I was giving. And so Jesus claims they were following him for selfish reasons, and I think they, they were. They were hungry, and they knew where they could get food. Some people will follow Jesus for what he will f- supply for them physically, and so they have a preoccupation with possessions. If Jesus would just bless me with these things, and here's the kind of things they look for. I want God to fill my freezer with food. God, would you please fill my freezer with food? I want God to fix my physical maladies. 
I want God to straighten out my marriage. I want God to give me a high-paying job. I want God to make me a great athlete. I want God to provide friends for me. I want God to punish my enemies. I should highlight that one. I want God to give me a bigger house. I want God to bless me with a newer car. I want God to give me a great harvest this year. And what is the problem with all those? In and of themselves, those are things we probably could pray for and it would be okay, except for it becomes the preoccupation of our life and all that we do is treat God like a vending machine or some high-order genie to meet my needs. I put my quarter of prayer and I pull the knob and God gives me the candy bar. And we treat God no different than that. Our perspective of God is not right. What are we going to do when we find ourselves like the man over in the Middle East in prison and beaten for his faith in Jesus? Is God meeting his needs? And yet his faith is strong. The problem with this is it's all about me and meeting my needs. It almost slips into the health, wealth, and prosperity type theology and understanding. And yet we can see this with Achan in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Achan took a beautiful garment after they had won a wonderful battle at Jericho. He takes this beautiful Babylonian garment. He takes 20 pieces of silver and a bar of gold. And instead of focusing on God and his goodness and provision, he is going after material possessions. We see this also in Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the church about how much money they were giving. Rather than saying, here's what we gave, and really the Bible says that they didn't really just lie to the church, they lied to God. But it was all because of their preoccupation with material possessions. He talks about Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. And this is what we see with the crowd. If Jesus doesn't meet my physical needs, if he doesn't answer my prayer, if he doesn't give me a boyfriend by Friday, (laughs) right? If he doesn't supply me a girlfriend, if he doesn't do this, if he doesn't do that, then I don't need him. And yet he's saying, I'm the bread of life. You need me for everything. You need me for absolutely everything. It is not wrong to have possessions or ask God for certain things. But we need to be sure that our motives for following Jesus is not to get things. Our motive for serving Jesus is relationship. And that's what's crucial. So he goes on in this passage and he says, You saw the miraculous signs, but that's not why you followed me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he goes on and says, Do not work for food that spoils, in verse 27, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He wanted it to be a gift given to them. He says, I will give it to you. Notice what he says here in John 4.10, the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. It's not something we work for. And yet that's exactly what they did. They wanted to ask him. Notice what it says down in verse 28. They asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? They wanted to see what kind of work they had to do. 
And here it says, uh, it's kind of hard to read those last couple words, but it says, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler, what do I need to do? He wanted to do something. Here, brothers, what shall we do in Acts? When Peter preached his message, their response was, What shall we do? Here in Acts 16.30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer comes in and throws himself down and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like, I've got to do something. He says what? Here's the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's exactly what he says in verse 29. Jesus answers, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Do we really believe in what Jesus has said or not. And that is crucial. If you flip over to chapter 8 for a moment, look in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. So the question is, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? Believe is the idea of placing our confidence and trust in another person, the person of Christ. To regard him as trustworthy or reliable. It's the oath of fidelity that I will be faithful to this individual because this individual has been faithful and trustworthy in what he says and what he does. In the Old Testament, man's reaction to God's primary action The Psalms clearly portray what it is like to exercise faith as an individual. We see that in the psalmist David who over and over as he wrestled with the issues of life, his faith would be up here one minute and the next minute it would be down here. And he wrestled with that whole idea of putting his faith and trust in Jesus. And even if we go back to, I just want to refer to one psalm for a moment. In Psalm 73, which is actually a psalm of Asaph, who was a worshipped leader among God's people, he says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is in Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When he saw the prosperity of the wicked, it began to cause his faith to quiver and to shake. He said, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. And so then he says later, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. He's like, it's been a waste of time for me to hold on to this faith looking at the the wicked, how they're prospering and getting along and they're healthy and they're happy and what am I? I'm suffering and miserable as a believer in Jesus. But then his heart turns and he says this, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. And then he's reminded of this. God says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, 
You will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And what he did, he came back to this incredible fear of God. And when you marry the fear of God and the faith of God, they're welded together. The fear of God is demonstrated in our faith in God. And they are welded together. And when we have that, we have this strong faith and confidence and assurance and hope. The Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we have that incredible hope in Jesus Christ. And yet they wanted to perform all these good deeds. And God will accept me based on my good deeds. And Jesus is saying he will only accept his son and his death on the cross as payment for sin. Next we see Jesus claims the work of God is to believe in him. And that's the one I just talked about a moment ago. They totally miss the sign. And they even go back and they refer in verse 31... Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread, but my father. And what they were saying is this. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years every day. You have supplied bread one time for one event for 5,000 people. And our fathers were supplied bread by Moses for 40 years every day. Many, many, multiple times more people. So you did an incredible thing, but how about doing something a little more incredible? (laughs) How about doing something a little more than that? And Jesus reminded him, wait a minute, Moses didn't do that. God did that. And in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that he is God. And therefore, he is the one. He was the shadow. The manna was the shadow that the bread of life was coming. And they didn't get the picture. They totally missed it. He says down in verse 32 and 33, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Here is a reference to his incarnation. The bread that came down from heaven was in the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He said, I'm standing before you as the bread of life. You thought the manna was a miracle. Here's the real miracle. Here's the one. The people ate the manna, he said, in the wilderness. And what happened? What was the result? They still died. (laughs) You eat the bread of life. You eat the bread of Jesus Christ and you will live forever. Eternal life. Is that a greater miracle or not? I will not only sustain you physically, I will sustain you spiritually for eternity. That's what he was saying. Jesus claims that he is the bread of life. And they missed it. He will give us everything we need. The crowd saw in verse 36, look with me. The crowd Saul, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Seeing is not believing. Believing is understanding and grasping and comprehending what Jesus said he was. But I want us to look to, actually right before this, at uh, God's divine choice. I don't have this on the uh, outline. 
Um, look down in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. All who comes to me. God's divine choice to save. The Bible calls it election. A lot of people struggle with that. But God has elected before the foundation of the earth who would be saved. God has elected that. He has chosen that. He chose us in him, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. He says that here in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's God's divine choice on one hand and there's human responsibility on the other. We still have the responsibility of coming to Jesus. Man's responsibility to respond. Whoever comes to me, he says. And then he has God's eternal guarantee. I will never drive away. That is an eternal guarantee because he goes on in the very next verse. I have come down from heaven, in verse 38, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So there's this security that we have in Jesus Christ, his eternal guarantee that he is going to raise us up at the last day, everlasting life, because of salvation in Christ. He goes on with this second group, the Jews, in verses 41 to 59. And let me just say, in, in light of the time, uh, here's what has transpired. They grumble at Jesus' claim that he is the bread that came down from heaven. And here's why they were grumbling about that. Because, uh, actually, let me just give you these uh, questions uh, Merrill Tenney, in his uh, commentary on John, suggests two questions that agitated the Jews. The first one is, what is the origin of Jesus? Because they could not comprehend that he said he came down from heaven. They said, wait a minute, we know your parents. Joseph and Mary, how did you come from heaven? Your parents are Joseph and Mary. How in the world can you say you came from heaven? That's pretty ridiculous. And so they didn't understand that at all. Secondly, what is the meaning of the utterance concerning the eating of his flesh? Now they're like, what is this, cannibalism or what? What do you mean, eat your flesh? How are you going to supply bread for the world by your flesh? And so they were totally thinking literal, and Jesus is speaking figurative. And this is what Jesus did. He often spoke in parables, and this is why Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. Now this is crucial, and the reason they couldn't understand is because the Father had not drawn them to himself. Some people have the notion that I'll get saved when I'm good and ready, or I'll get saved on my own, or it's my decision, and I'll do this and I'll do that. You cannot come to Christ on your terms. I cannot come to Christ on my terms. The only way we can come to Christ is when the Father of God draws our hearts and convicts us of our sin and shows us our sinfulness. And that is absolutely vital that we understand that. Here is the next point. 
Jesus claims the only way a person can come to him is by the Father drawing him. That's a pretty big claim. Look with me down in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I had mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to mention it again to remind us of our condition. No one comes to Jesus on their own, and man is born in sin. It's vital, because if you talk to the average person on the street, the average person, if you ask them this question, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Most people will say, yes, I consider myself to be a good person. However, that's the exact opposite of the Bible. The Bible does not consider anybody to be good people at all. The Bible says we're all sinners. We're born in sin, and that is not good. We're separated from God. Look, Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. We were born in sin, conceived in sin, born separated from God, very clearly. Look at Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And what do we see? We see people... Uh, in neighborhoods or in schools shooting people or stabbing people and we say well they they were a good person why did that happen it happened because they have a deceitful sinful heart and unless they've been converted and regenerated by the power of God we are capable of doing anything at all man is enslaved to the dominating control of sin and we have to understand that absolutely dominated to the control of sin apart from Christ. And it comes from Romans 3, 9 to 18, and I'm just going to go over these quickly. I mentioned them a couple weeks ago, but I want to make sure you, you get this is absolutely crucial and foundational to us coming to Christ, is that we understand that we're lost and we need Jesus Christ. No one is righteous. I think that means everyone. No one understands The only way the Bible says the natural man cannot understand the the things of God except the Spirit of God quickens his mind and heart to the truth. No one understands the truth by themselves. That's why you can read that book till you're blue in the face, and unless the Spirit of God quickens your heart and my heart, we will walk away totally unchanged. No one understands. No one seeks after God. If you are seeking after God, that is a result of the grace of God and the Spirit of God at work in your heart. You will not seek after God naturally. Not at all. And neither will I. It's the Spirit of God. Fourthly, no one does good. No one. Their speech is dishonest. Lie. Their speech is corrupt. Their actions are destructive. I mean, is this not modern-day society? Tell me, is it not? (laughs) And they do not fear God. That's a characteristic of wickedness. People do not fear God at all. Now, this is the depravity of man. Listen to this. Michael Hoodman said there is a misconception regarding total depravity. I shared this a couple weeks ago, but I feel led to share it again. Total depravity does not mean a person is as wicked or sinful as they could possibly be. 
It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean that man is without a conscience or a sense of right and wrong. Neither does it mean that man does not or cannot do things that seem to be good when viewed from a human perspective or measured against a human standard. It does not mean that man cannot do things that seem to conform outwardly to the law of God. What the Bible does teach and what total depravity does recognize is that even the good things a man does is tainted by sin. That's what we have to understand. It's tainted by sin because they are not done for the glory of God and out of faith in God. While man looks upon the outward acts and judges them to be good, God looks upon the outward acts. He also looks at the hit inward motives that lie behind them because they proceed from a heart that is in rebellion against him and they are not done for his glory. And therefore they are viewed before the eyes of God as filthy rags. In his sight. In other words, man's Fallen man's good deeds are motivated not by a desire to please God, but by our own self-interest and are thus corrupted to the point where God declares that there is no one who does good. And this destroys the notion of a works-based religion, that you and I can somehow attain salvation through human effort, and we can't. Man does not have to learn to sin. He comes by it naturally. So what do we need to do? We need to hear the truth. Just as the Ethiopian eunuch did when he was reading in Isaiah in the Scripture and Philip was told to go to his chariot and he listened to him reading about Christ in Isaiah. And when he was reading about Jesus Christ, he didn't understand. And Philip explained the gospel to him. And then his eyes were opened because the Spirit of God drew him to himself. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ. But he heard the truth. And when he heard the truth, he was convicted of his sin. And that's the next part. And that conviction of sin comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the process. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. And thirdly, we believe in Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is crucial. So what is Jesus trying to communicate? Just that very thing. To believe the word of God to be convicted in your heart and to believe in Jesus. That you would be in an intimate, personal relationship with the bread of life. And I think the reason he chose bread is because bread was the staple of life. It sustained their physical life. Without bread, they could not be sustained physically. And he's saying, without me, you can have no life spiritually. You're dead without me. And what did the crowd and the Jews want more than anything? Life. And what was the mission of Jesus when he came? Life. (laughs) The very thing they wanted, he had. And he was trying to communicate that intimate relationship. 
Let me just move on here to the third point. The third group is the disciples. How did the disciples respond to the claims of Jesus? Well, they grumbled at Jesus' claims. (laughs) Believe it or not, look over in verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, Does this offend you? He realized that his words were offensive to even the inner circle. And this wasn't just the 12. I think it was other disciples there as well. But he realized they were offended at him making such a claim. And the world is offended too when they say it's an exclusive. You're saying Jesus is the only way. Yes, he is the only way. He said he was. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So they had a hard time accepting what he was saying. And if you look down in verse 65, he says this. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. There it is again. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father is at work in your heart. So if you are feeling guilty that you have violated God's law, that is the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. It's not even me. It's the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. You can quench the Spirit or you can listen to the Spirit. And I would encourage you to listen to the Spirit. If he is convicting you that you are a sinner and have never accepted Jesus Christ, the bread of life, this is your opportunity to understand that you are lost apart from Jesus Christ and he died on the cross for you and he paid the penalty in full that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and be changed. The other thing was they quit following Jesus and there are a lot of disciples like that. When they hear the truth, They quit following Jesus. I have been in some counseling situations, and I had to tell people hard truth in counseling, and then I never see them again because they didn't like what they heard. But when they come in for counseling, this is the book I use. And if they are doing something contrary to uh, what this book says, I point it out. Because I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account of what I do. And I take it very seriously. And I want them to have life in Jesus Christ. And they will not have life apart from Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. In John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress... He writes about the main character whose name was Christian. When he was face to face with the devil, in Bunyan's account of his travels to the celestial city, he thought how dearly he would love to go back and escape the conflict because it was so difficult. He just thought about, maybe I should just turn back and forget all this conflict. However, when he thought of his armor, he remembered that he had none for his back. He had a shield, a breastplate, a helmet, a sword, but nothing for his back. So he realized that if he was to turn around and go back, it would only take the devil one moment to slay him with the spear. 
He therefore resolved that however bad it might be to go forward, it would nevertheless be worse to go backward. So he fought on and gained victory. Remember, as followers of Jesus, we cannot afford to retreat and go back. We must press on like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I believe I tried to share the words this morning that God prompted me to share that I needed to hear and I trust you needed to hear as well. The question remains, we saw how the crowds, the Jews and the disciples responded to the claims of Christ. Now it's our turn. How do you and I respond to the claims of Christ? We can say with our lips that we believe, but our commitment is shown in our walk, in our daily life, in our choices, in how we are raising our families and the kind of personal convictions we develop. Are they biblical? And it is, it is absolutely vital that Christ is the bread of life. He is our life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you are trusting in your own good works, your own effort. Or maybe you are a believer and you are treating God more like a genie than the almighty, holy, righteous God that he is. And you need to develop more of a fear of God in your life. If you are living in disobedience to God, I would encourage you to give your life to Jesus Christ, to come to him that you might have life and have it abundantly. I'm just going to wait just for a moment while you stand there in silence and prayer. For believers, would you be praying that if there's somebody here this morning who is lost, that God would draw them to himself? I can't do it. You can't do it, but only the Holy Spirit can draw them to himself. And I trust if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart this morning, I sense the Spirit of God is at work this morning. If he is at work in your heart, would you say yes to Jesus this morning? Please don't turn your back on him. Because there's no guarantee that he will draw you again. Would you respond to him? For those of us who are believers, to be reminded and encouraged that no matter what we are going through, the bread of life is sufficient. The provision of Christ is sufficient for every need that we have. We have some special needs that we need to be praying for as a church, and I'm going to ask our elders if we could meet just briefly for prayer in one of the classrooms right outside after the service. Um, but we have some needs in our church that we need to be praying about. And so I would ask if you could just do that for a short time today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you so much for the power of your word. Lord, it is straightforward. And while there may be some passages that are difficult, it's not those that we need to be concerned about. It's the ones that are clear to us. The ones that we need to be acting on and living out. The ones we need to be responding to. The claims of Christ. You have made some incredible claims. And God, we have to give an account for our response to those claims. That you are the bread of life. And Lord, that no one can come to the Father except through you. And so I pray, God, if there's someone here today who is lost and they're trusting in something other than Jesus Christ for their eternal destiny, I pray that today they will see that it will not erase their sin and it will not reconcile them to a holy God. And I pray that today they would be broken over their sin and have a fear of God to put their faith in God. I pray that this would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for believers who may be discouraged today, who may be going through a difficult time. Lord, to realize that you are there with us and you will sustain us as a bread of life. You will give us whatever we need whenever we need it. That you're our eternal encourager. You're a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And God, when we see the miracles that you do, we know that you do miracles in our lives as well. Lord, I thank you for Bethesda Church. I thank you for the faithfulness of those who are committed to Christ. Lord, may we be more committed in the days ahead. We may see you do great and mighty things for your honor and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Lord's Day. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you have any questions or want to know more about our church, please go to our website at www.bchweb.org or find us on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.